welcome a family welcome back to another episode of the act protect engage academy podcast <laughs> i am your host mr chase h i am the ceo of act protect engage thank you for joining me on this great tuesday evening i hope you guys are having a great beginning of the week hope life isn't stressing you out too much so what are we talking about today if you haven't checked out the last episode do so all right definitely do so there's a lot of great information in that one we're talking about the m16 all right this is part two two-part series maybe three it depends on how much information we get through today all right so today's episode is entitled Battlefield Bloodlines, the M16 Part 2. Enjoy, Ape. All right, all right, all right, all right, all right. Beats by Mr. Organic Dope, my man. My childhood friend out of Philly, the great city of brotherly love. Thank you, my friend, for the great custom-made beats just for us here at the Ape Academy Podcast. Thank you for joining me. I really appreciate all my listeners. Shout out to the international folks who are tuning in from countries across the world. We love you guys. Shout out to all my domestic listeners in America. We love you just as much. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you guys have the time and, you know, we don't need a freaking paragraph. We don't need a freaking thesis statement. Just a quick review would do us a lot of good. All right. Would go a long, long way. So if you can follow us, subscribe, rate and review it means a lot to us, okay? We're trying to break into the top 100 podcasts, so we'd really appreciate any help you guys can give us. It really means a lot to us, okay, guys? All right, so last episode, Battlefield Bloodlines, the M16 Part 1. What did we talk about? Well, we talked about the lineage of the M16, specifically the evolution of the army's perspective on what made a battlefield rifle efficient okay so as the enemy changed right so in the second world war we're fighting another kind of standing army actually we're fighting two of them traditional army with traditional tactics although the japanese did have very very unique kamikaze attacks and they did use wave attacks, human wave attacks, but the weapons of the day were perfectly suited for that type of combat, you know, set piece battles, counterattacks, ambushes, you know, platoon action, mostly with small units, platoon versus platoon, right? In the Korean War, things changed, right? The enemy changed. It was a totally different enemy, and with different enemy come different tactics, all right? So each enemy has a different way of fighting all right we see this across history so 
the North Koreans and the Chinese fought completely differently. They didn't care about sacrificing soldiers. Human wave attacks en masse, okay? Suicide charges. They were armed differently. And what we found out was the M1 Garand and some of the old school World War II weapons just weren't giving us the fire superiority on an individual basis, you know, individual knuckle draggers, individual infantry soldiers to a man just didn't have enough firepower to really even the playing field. So we learned a lot of hard lessons in Korea. And now we're transitioning into the Vietnam War, all right? So the time frame is the 1950s, okay, guys? We're working in the 1950s. We just came out of Korea. All right, actually, we're kind of still in it, but we're starting to phase out of it, okay? So we're starting with Armalite. There's a company called Armalite. And anyone who you know has done their research about the AR-15 knows that the AR-15 does not actually stand for assault rifle. <laughs> it stands for Armalite rifle, right? So that's kind of a common misnomer. So we're going to talk a little bit about that background, okay? AR stands for Armalite. So we have a few sources, Pew Pew Tactical, uh, Encyclopedia Britannica, we uh, Wikipedia as usual, we're confirming sources. We've used a few U.S. Army studies and surveys. So all the sources are good, verified sources, guys. When you do a fact-based, history-based podcast, you always got to make sure that your info is good to go. Good thing is, all this stuff is verified, certified facts, okay? Um, you know, and there's different perspectives on it, on how efficient the M16 was. And we're not arguing about if the M16 was a good weapon or not, right? What we're talking about is the evolution of, of warfare in this era in this era right the evolution of the u.s military's battle rifle that's what we're talking about in these last few podcasts okay so i know there's always folks who want to debate kind of you know people on my instagram well the m14 was better blah 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 i'm like okay it was better for certain environments right but we had to remember met tc what is the mission who is the enemy tactics terrain right time civilian considerations right you got to consider all this stuff into choosing your battle rifle okay all right so i'm not gonna go on a rant about that i can go on a rant all day so we're talking about armor light ar stands for armor light in the 1950s fairchild engine and airplane corporation made the decision to branch out into the small arms industry. So they are an aviation company. They build airplanes. They build airplane parts, right? A lot of really high-level engineering in this company, all right? But I guess they see an opportunity to branch out a little bit into the small, small arms industry. By 1954, the company had created Armalite. So that was a smaller startup division for small arms development and manufacturing. And this company was based in Hollywood, California. So the division of this company, Armalite, is based in Hollywood, which is fitting, which is really fitting <laughs> for the situation. They wanted to break into the industry, so what did they do? 
They created a specific division and named it Armalite. And they were going to be in charge of developing all of the small arms. Okay. The first sale of Armalite was the AR-5. The AR-5. And it was a 22 caliber bolt action rifle made specifically for the Air Force. Why? I don't really know. Why they needed a 22 bolt action? I don't know. <laughs> don't not, do not ask me why. I guess they wanted to break in. They figured, hey, let's break in with the small calibers first. I'm not sure if they put a whole lot of thought into why that would be useful, but that's what they did. It weighed less than three pounds, and it could be broken apart to store the barrel and work inside within the plastic stock, which is pretty cool. I do like this weapon because have you guys ever heard of the Ruger Takedown 22? It's one of the most popular 22 long rifle carbines out there, right? It's a rifle made by Ruger and you could break it down into parts, right? What's really cool about it is like the perfect kind of like prepper survivalist firearm because, you know, Everyone knows you can carry thousands of rounds of 22 on your person without it adding too much weight. Add to that an element of being compact and being easy to break apart and move around. That makes a Ruger 22 a pretty nifty weapon. And this was kind of like a almost like an ancestor to that because this first Armalite weapon, you could take it apart. You can actually store part of it inside the stock, which is pretty cool actually. Um, it was designed in the 50s, but the sale never took off. It just never happened for whatever reason. wasn't working out for them. Okay? Armalite realized that in order to be taken seriously, they had to recruit big-name talent and really invest some serious money into this. They can't just go willy-nilly, stick their toe in. If they really want to be taken seriously as a player in the small arms industry and compete for those government contracts they had to go out recruit and spend a little bit of money guess who they found they recruited Mr. Eugene Stoner to become the chief engineer Stoner in his past life had been a highly successful engineer in the airline industry and guess what he just happened to be experimenting with lightweight materials and using them for firearms so it kind of the stars aligned and everything kind of matched up perfectly for Armalite they found their man in Mr. Eugene Stoner everyone knows him now as the creator of the AR-15 slash M16 rifle the godfather of the civilian AR-15 sporting rifle <laughs> the godfather like the movie so at Armalite Stoner's first major project was the gas-operated AR-10. And he completed this prototype in 1955. All right, so his first real mm, major project that actually gained a little bit of steam was the AR-10. Usually the number represents the design number, right? So it's the 10th design or the 20th design or the 15th design. So this is probably his like 10th variation. All right, his 10th try. It weighed in at barely seven pounds. It shot 20 rounds of 7.62 times 55 millimeter NATO. It had an ionized aluminum receiver. This is for all my 
technical nerds, <laughs> all my performance gear nerds out here, okay, guys? So if anyone's not into this stuff, just hang with me for a little bit. I got to put some of, the, some of the specs out there, all right? So shot 20 rounds out of a 762 times 51 millimeter NATO, right? So it shot pretty good rounds, pretty hefty rounds. It had an ionized aluminum receiver and a fiberglass composite stock. Really nice. The final prototype featured an upper and lower receiver with the now familiar hinge and takedown pins. And the charging handle was on the top of the receiver and it was placed inside the carrying handle. Now this is really, really high speed, cutting edge stuff right there. All right, let me repeat that. The final prototype featured an upper and lower receiver, so it was broken into two parts, which was unheard of, with the now familiar hinge and takedown pins. So anyone who has an AR-15 knows that you can break it apart and there are two pins that hold it together. And the charging handle was on the top of the receiver, placed inside the carrying handle. Pretty dope. All right. To reduce recoil, the barrel was in line with the stock and the sights were raised to eye level. Although the new design didn't get the attention of the government at this time, Stoner actually held on to the design, okay? He said, you know what, I'm not going to throw this to the side just because we didn't win this contract. And I think this is when the M14 won. So they were competing with other companies, and the arm, we're going to go into this in a second, but the Army wanted a very specific type of weapon. And of course, like anything else, when they try to fix a problem, they make the problem worse. So we're gonna go <laughs> we're gonna go into that in a second, all right? All right, so he held on to the design, even though no one really was into it, he held on to it. And he should have, and I'm happy he did because it was freaking ingenious. The T forty four, which is now named the M fourteen rifle, was selected over the AR ten. So we just discussed that. The M14 was basically an improved M1 Garand with a 20-round box magazine and auto-fire capability. Anyone who, any of you guys who listened to the last podcast will recognize this, okay? So they lost to the T44, a.k.a. the M14, and it was really mostly because the Army was just more comfortable with that style of rifle because they had used it previously. It, the Army doesn't like changing. The military does not like to change, and if they do, they change very slowly. It's like pulling teeth. So rather than taking a risk, taking a chance on the new cutting-edge design, they went back to kind of like the old-school, typical, you know, cookie-cutter design of the M1 Garand. It was just kind of like an upgraded M4. Uh, M1 Garand or M2 Carbine. It was a disaster. All right. In this trial, the U.S. Army also adopted the M60 general purpose machine gun. All right. So we got the M14 that they chose over the AR 10, and they also chose the M60 machine gun. So that was actually a pretty decent choice. All right. The early confrontations between the AK 47. We're talking Vietnam now, so we transitioned into Vietnam. The early confrontations between the AK-47 and the M-14 occurred in the early part of the Vietnam War. 
because the M14 was really only used in the early stages. It did not last long in the jungle. It was pulled very quickly. Battlefield reports indicated that the M14 was uncontrollable in full auto. So basically, the only real upgrade that the army was kind of selling, it was kind of banking on, the only upgrade from the World War II style M1 carbine was the fact that it was fully automatic. That was supposed to be like the cherry on top, like, oh, this is going to make it, you know, dope. This is going to make it sick. This is gonna, <laughs> It's going to be so much better now than the M1 because it's fully auto, right? Wrong. It was uncontrollable. So the bullet it shot was just too big to shoot on full auto in that frame, in that type of rifle. They didn't have the engineering for the M14. They didn't have the proper engineering, I should say, to shoot the weapon at full auto. <laughs> and on top of that, so not only was it uncontrollable on full auto, the soldiers could not carry enough ammunition to maintain fire superiority over the AK-47. So the... The magazines only held 20 rounds, and they were heavy, big, heavy rounds, right? And since it was uncontrollable at full auto, most of the time, the weapons were kind of just kept on semi-auto. So that was not the point of the M14. The point of the M14 was to make it better than the M1 Garand, and it did not succeed at that, all right? So I know a lot of people, you know, they, they you know, they're arguing me. To the you know the end of the earth. Oh, Chase, the M14 was better. The M14 was better. Yeah, I mean it was better on an individual basis. If we're on a flat range, in a dry environment, shooting shooting paper, the M14 is way better than the M16. It's cooler. It looks cooler. It shoots a better round. It's more sturdy. It's more accurate. It's more reliable. But remember. This is in the context of a war. This is in the context of a battlefield. You're facing an enemy. You're not facing paper, paper targets. So in order to defeat this enemy, you need to be able to shoot more bullets at them more accurately than them. And if the M14 can't get this done, like if the M14 just can't live up to the pressure of the battlefield, meaning that you need to ma maintain fire superiority at all times if it can't do that then it's useless right so although the m2 offered a high rate of fire like the 30 caliber okay so let me go back real quick they also had a weapon called the m2 carbine all right so the the m2 is an upgrade from the m1 carbine and it shot a smaller bullet the 30 caliber bullet and it shot a lot faster it was a lot lighter but the bullet was too weak so although the m2 carbine offered a high rate of fire the 30 caliber bullet bullet didn't didn't do the trick it was ultimately outclassed by the ak-47 so we have two upgrades right now we have the m14 which is supposed to be an upgrade from the m1 garand and then we have the m2 carbine which is a upgrade from the m1 and remember the difference between the m14 and the m Two is the caliber. The M14 shoots a basically a 308, and the M2 shoots a 30 caliber round. So 30 caliber rounds didn't have a whole lot of punching power on the battlefield. 
and the 308 on fully automatic was uncontrollable. So they're kind of stuck in a pickle, right? A replacement was badly needed. A compromise between the traditional preference for high-powered rifles like the M14 and the lightweight compact power of the M2 carbine. So the military needed a middleman. They needed something that meet that would meet both of those needs, right? So the army they really love high-powered rifles. The problem was it wasn't light and it wasn't compact. So for jungle jungle warfare, they needed a weapon that could do that that could be both, okay? That could do both. All right, in steps Mr. General Willard Wynn, all right? I'm sorry, not Wynn, Wyman. <laughs> I can't read, man. I got this outline in front of me. General William Wyman. My bad, Wyman. All right. In 1957, General Wyman, a West Point grad and a four-star general of Continental Army Command, CONARC, that's the acronym. The Army has an acronym for everything. <laughs> Literally, there's an acronym for everything. He requested the Army to try to develop a 223-inch caliber, right? So basically that's a 556. Five, All right, so you know how you hear 223556. Five, five, so General Wyman wanted the army to develop a 0.223, right, inch caliber, which is basically the 5.56 millimeter. All right? He wanted a select fire rifle weighing 6 pounds when loaded with a 20 round magazine. That's what he wanted. All right? So the rounds are a little bit smaller then a 762 times 55 or 51 but it shoots a lot more accurately and we'll go into that later all right the 556 round had to penetrate a standard u.s issued helmet at 500 yards which is 460 meters and had to retain a velocity in excess of the speed of sound which is pretty fast it also needed to match or exceed the wounding ability of the 30 caliber carbine. All right, so the trick was this. If we're going to start a whole new caliber, if we're going to test out the 5.56, five, what we needed to do is be more powerful than the 30 caliber. Because if it's not, there's no point. All right, we need a bullet that can actually kill someone. The 30 caliber had mixed results as far as stopping power, as far as lethality. So, General Wyman says, Listen, guys, let's try to develop this new 5.56 millimeter caliber, right? But we need it to go straight through a helmet at 500 yards, and we need it to travel fast as F, right? We need it to break the speed of sound because in order to penetrate the jungle, in order to penetrate the enemy, you have to move really fast, right? The request resulted in the development of a scaled-down version of the AR-10, tent of the AR-10, named the Armalite AR-15 rifle. Boom! There you go. <laughs> in steps the AR-15. All right, General Wyman was so impressed with the weapon that he visited Mr. Stoner and he invited him to try again. So it wasn't picked, right? Um, he was trying with the, he was fiddling with the AR-10. He came up with the AR-15. The army really didn't have any, 
I keep saying the army, but it's really the army and the, the military as, as a institution. They weren't looking for that yet, but he was developing it, right? General Wyman really encouraged him to keep trying, keep developing it. And he was one of his big his biggest advocates, right? He's the he's really the guy who got the military to wake the F up. He kept knocking on the door, right? He kept blowing up the phone, like, yo, yo, I know this guy named Eugene. You need to hit him up, you need to give him a chance. And the, army, and the military was like, nah, nah. We're going with the M14. And he's like, trust me, guys. So this is what happens, right? You gotta keep trying, you gotta be persistent. And that's what he was. He knew and he believed in the vision that that Mr. Stoner had, right? The new way of warfare, right? Small, compact, lightweight weapons that could fire really, really fast. Okay. Wyman tried to delay the test trial decision to give Armalite more time to develop the AR-15, like I just said, but the Army decided that the M14 was its go-to caliber is a go-to battle rifle right the m14 and the um, 7.62 by 51 millimeter round all right so they decided the m14 was a better fit wyman ordered 10 of stoner's ar-15s under the radar like low-key ordered them and then encouraged stoner to keep it up keep working in 1958 general wyman convinced the army to finally test these new ar-15s like I said, persistence. Keep trying. All right, guys, we're taking a break now. We're at, oh, I don't know, 26 minutes. Hope you're enjoying the episode so far. I'm sorry if there's a lot of details. I'm trying to break it down as simply as I can. Trust me, I can get into all type of really, really boring stuff. <laughs> I try to keep it lit, I try to keep it fun and light. So. Just trying to keep you guys uh, entertained. God bless y'all. I'll be right back. Ape. Engage Academy podcast. I'm your host. If you forgot, if you're like me and your memory sucks, I'm your host, Chase H. All right. What are we talking about, guys? Do you guys remember? Hello, wake up. Have you fallen asleep yet? We're talking about the AR 15. Well, actually, we're talking about the M16, but at this point, it wasn't named the M16 yet. All right, the original. We're talking about the original now. All right, so just know, okay, disclaimer. Just know that the weapon that we know now as the AR-15 sporting rifle is a super upgraded version of this. This is the starter version. <laughs> like literally the first line in the AR-15 line. So it was like, 
The M16 sucked monkey balls, dude. It was terrible. I'm like, this was the first model. There's going to be, like, mistakes made. And I know it cost some people their lives. It's tragic in this war. But once you make these upgrades and these tweaks, then we start getting into something good. So this, the rifle we see in the stores today is not this rifle, but it's based on it, okay? This is the the triple OG of the carbine game, all right? So the original AR-15, Stoner's first AR-15 weighed only six pounds. That's super light. And it was 37 and a half inches long. There was a hand guard around the barrel and the barrel was baked light. No, I'm sorry. The handgun, the handgun, the handguard was baked light and featured a three-prong flash suppressor, okay? The AR-15 was made from a combination of fiberglass, hard ionized aluminum, and steel, and it was gas-operated, all right? Gas-operated. What it did was it ported gas from the charge through a tube in order to force the bolt carrier to the rear, thus ejecting the spent cartridge so that a fresh round could load, all right? You got that? Basically, gas was used to make sure the bolt carrier reciprocated in order to eject the round and load another one, all right? That was a tongue twister. The AR-15 used the 223 caliber bullets, which destabilized when they hit a human body, as opposed to the 30 caliber round which typically passed through in a straight line. So this is what made the 223 more deadly than the 30 caliber. The 30 caliber moved really fast, but that was one of its problems. It shot fast and straight, and it went straight through somebody. When the 223 hit you, it hit you, and it kind of broke apart a little bit, which really increases lethality as compared to the 30 caliber. The smaller caliber also meant that it could be controlled on auto fire due to the reduced recoil. So that's really what the military wanted. They wanted a weapon that could shoot a lot of bullets really fast but would be controllable. And the 223 had just enough lethality to get the military's attention. Like, okay, like, it's not going to do nothing. It's not going to be like a freaking mosquito bite. It's actually going to do some damage. And, right, and... We can shoot it on full auto and actually hit something. Because the problem with the M14 was that it was a big old powerful round, right? And it killed people instantly, but you couldn't control it on full auto. And when the Vietnamese are shooting their AKs full throttle, their rifles, whatever they're armed with, right? AK-47s, whatever, full throttle, you had to be able to match that. And guess what? The AR-15 was only a third of the weight of the 30 caliber carbine, which meant that soldiers could sustain high rates of fire for longer with the same exact loadout. You can carry the same exact load as you did with the 30 caliber and shoot longer and more accurately, and it was lighter. Sounds good to me. The AR-15 could fire 600 to 700 rounds a minute with a low jamming rate in testing. I put in testing specifically in parentheses because when I went, did my research, I saw this and I was like, yeah, in, in, on the flat range, it didn't jam. So we're going to talk about that later. Like out in the field in Vietnam, it was horrible. Dude, when you talk about horrible, 
it was bad for the first like for the first like year you know it was like holy crap we might have to go back to freaking bold action guns <laughs> world war one nothing's working right now but they got it figured out the parts were stamped out not hand machined so parts could easily be mass produced and the stock was plastic to reduce the weight so it was a lot easier to mass produce because they were machined right it wasn't like some like old like german man like tinkering in like a basement to make each rifle like it could be mass produced at a really really quick rate all right what we got what we got ah yes war games we're talking about war games in 1958 the army's Co combat developments experimentation command wow say that five times fast ran simulations with small squads in combat situations and they used the m14 and the ar-15 the results led to a recommendation to adopt the ar-15 so after this crazy testing they did they actually recommended the AR-15 over the M14. What do you think the Army did? The exact freaking opposite. In response to the data, the Army did the exact opposite, mandating that all rifles and machine guns should use the same ammunition. They ordered full production of the M14. Even after the data showed that the AR-15 outperformed the M14 in simulated battles the army refused to listen they refused to look at the data because their idea was they wanted all machine guns and all rifles to use the same ammunition which is like ridiculous like anyone who's been in the military more than two seconds knows that that is an unrealistic expectation but for some reason they were just stuck on it they could not get away from they wanted heavy bullets they loved big rounds they just pause they loved huge calibers like they were just stuck on it AR, AR-15 supporters secured the support of Air Force Chief of Staff General Curtis LeMay the Air Force performed its own independent test and it used the suggested Remington ammunition that was supplied Based on the results, the Air Force designated the AR-15 as its standard model and ordered 8,500 rifles and 8.5 million rounds. So it must have performed pretty well if the Air Force decided to ignore what the Army was doing and do its own thing. Advocates for the AR-15 within the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency Wow, say that five times fast. Again, acquired... 1,000 Air Force ARs and then shipped them off to the Army of the Republic of Vietnam known as the Arvin, right? The Arvin. The Army of the Republic of Vietnam. So that's the South Vietnamese Army. Pretty much that we stood up, we trained, we supported. So the Arvin are supposed to be testing this new AR-15. The Arvin reported that the AR-15 was extremely reliable. <laughs> I don't know what they were thinking. They recorded zero broken parts while firing 80,000 rounds in one test iteration. And then they reported that they only needed two replacement parts for over 1,000 weapons over the entire phase of the test. So, I'm not sure what the heck they were doing, 
but they definitely weren't testing them in the field of battle because the um, the U.S. soldiers had struggled with it. We're going to explain why. But according to the Arvin, right, the Army of South Vietnam, the AR-15s work pretty well. All right. So you got to listen to them because they are our chief allies in Vietnam. From 1962 to 1963, the AR slowly begins to take over. All right. Between 1963, oh, between 1962 and 1963, the U.S. military extensively tests the AR-15. Positive evaluations were all over the place. The evaluations emphasized the lightness, lethality, and reliability of this platform. The Army Material Command kind of, kind of threw a wrench in the party, right? A monkey wrench. They were like, nah. It's not accurate at long range, and it did not have the penetrating power that they were looking for, right? So there was one guy, one <laughs> one guy, one kind of organization that was like, I don't believe the hype, guys. Because everyone was starting to jump on the hype train. You know, oh, it's so lethal, it's so light, so reliable. And then the Army Material Command was like, no, no, no. Okay, let me explain something. So within, <laughs> real quick, I just realized, within the military, within the Army, there's different command structures, right? Different organizations within the broad umbrella of the Army. Right, you might have Special Forces Command, you have Army Material Command, you will have whatever <laughs> Africa Command. You know, you have different commands within the Army. So each command is kind of doing their own tests. The General Army, the big Army, the umbrella said, "We're adopting officially the M14," but other commands within the with, with, within the Army structure can do their own testing. Right? All right. Damn, that was a rant. My bad. In 1963, for instance, right, the U.S. Special Forces Command, right, we just talked about different commands, they requested and were granted the authority to make the AR-15 its standard weapon. So you know if the Special Forces is recommended, it might be pretty good. Other units, like the Army Airborne Unit and the CIA, also adopted the AR-15 around the same time. So early 1960s, we got the Special Forces Command, we have the airborne units, right? The 101st, the 82nd, and others. And on top of that, we have the CIA who jump in on the bandwagon. They're all jumping on the AR-15 bandwagon. They all are switching over from the AR uh, from the M14. All right. As more and more units adopted this new weapon, the Secretary of the Army, Cyrus Vance, ordered an investigation into why the heck. The weapon had been rejected in the first place because all these commands are starting to starting to order and request and, you know, acquire these AR-15s. And the secretary of the army is like, wait, like, like what? Like, wait, I thought we rejected this weapon. What's going on? He found that there was some corruption within the testing process. He found out that certain people within the within the command were kind of tilting the scales toward the M14, which is really interesting. In January of 1963, the Defense Department began mass procurement of rifles for the Air Force and Special Army units. Secretary McNara, McNamara, McNamara, okay, designed the, designated the Army as a procurer for the weapon within the DOD, which allowed Army Ordnance officials to make modifications as they saw fit. 
So the Secretary of Defense decided to make the Army the main go-getter for the AR-15. So it was the Army's job to go get them. So what this gave the Army the power to do was, okay, if we're going to go get these weapons, we should be able to make adjustments to it, tinker with it, make changes to it as we see fit, right? So that's one. That's the only way the army could really would really agree to the AR-15 was that if you gave them the purchasing power, the power to go out, get the weapon, and make modifications to it. So they compromised. The first modification was the addition of a manual bolt closure, and this allowed the soldier to ram a round into the chamber if it failed to seat properly. Both the Air Force and the Marines objected to this addition stating that it added unnecessary complexity and the added weight and extra parts reduced the reliability of the weapon. So, the Army, like I said, tends to mess everything up. So, in their infinite wisdom, the Army decides, <laughs> you know what? Since we got purchasing power, we're going to make some stupid innovation that we don't need. <laughs> so, it ends up that there are two different type of rifles that were produced, one with that addition, that manual bolt closure for the Army, and then one for the Marines and the Air Force that didn't have that. All right. We're almost done here. Performance. This is the key. This is what all the geeks want to know about. How did it perform? Well, in March of 1965, the Army officially get, began to issue the M, M16, the M, the X, M16E1 to the infantry units in Vietnam. The rifle was initially delivered without adequate cleaning kits or instructions. This was a critical mistake. This was a huge F up. You know why? No one knew how to work them. There were no manuals, no instructions, and there were no cleaning kits. The M16, the first generation, was very finicky. You had to make sure it was clean all the time. And that's what the testing didn't take into consideration. The you know the pre-combat testing was that those weapons were cleaned. Those weapons were in perfect condition. When you start giving them to the knuckle draggers and they're throwing them into their trenches and their foxholes, they're dragging them through the mud, they're dropping them in water, they don't perform as well. And with no instructions and with no cleaning kits, it's a disaster waiting to happen, right? So guess what happened? A disaster. Colt assured that the M16's materials made the weapon require little maintenance, which was interpreted by many to mean that the weapon was either self-cleaning or didn't need much maintenance at all, which is idiotic. Self-cleaning? Come on. But basically, Colt was like, yo, guys, yo, yo, listen, guys, this new M16, you don't need to do that much, man. And they're like, oh, really? You don't need to do anything? Nope, not really. And then they don't send you any cleaning kits. So you're just like, okay, well, I guess we're good. We can just shoot. No, 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 no. And when it was clean, right, when, when soldiers finally did decide to clean their weapons, a lot of times they're cleaned with improper equipment, such as in, uh, insect repellent, water, and aircraft fuel, which caused more harm than good. The results meant that there were many issues with jamming and, malf and malfunctions. So when you're cleaning your weapons with freaking aircraft fuel and insect repellent, yeah, 
your weapon's gonna jam a lot. And that's what they did, you know, because the soldiers didn't really know how to use it. And that is a failure of leadership at the highest levels. A huge institutional failure um, on the behalf of the military. They really should have taken a little bit more time in training and really getting people acclimated to the new equipment. So there's a lot of issues with jamming and malfunction. The most common problem is known as the failure to extract. That's, that's a common malfunction. It means that the spent cartridge case remained lodged in the chamber after the rifle was fired. So what that creates is a double feed, right? So you're shooting, your rounds are supposed to be ejected. So they're supposed to be thrown out and then a new round is inserted into the chamber, a fresh round. However, if the shell does not eject all the way and the bolt tries to catch a new round, it creates problems, creates jams. And in a firefight, that could be the difference between life and death, right? There are documented accounts of dead U.S. soldiers found next to disassembled rifles. So they were in the middle of a firefight trying to figure out how to fix their issues. And they ended up losing their lives in the process of trying to fix a malfunction. Quote, we left with 72 men in our platoon and came back with 19. Believe it or not, you know what killed us more? Our own rifle. Practically every one of our dead was found with his M16 torn down next to him where he had been trying to fix it. A Marine Corps, Corps rifleman in Vietnam. All right, so that's an anonymous, anonymous. That's a quote from a Marine Corps rifleman, all right? In 1967, the improved XM16E1 was standardized standardized as the M16A1. The new improved rifle had a chrome-plated chamber, and this would eliminate corrosion and eliminated the problem with the failure to extract failure to eject right the chrome plated chamber really helped with durability and reliability because it was easier to clean and it was made of better material new cleaning kits powder solvents and lubricants were also issued there was an intensive training program in weapons cleaning that was incorporated into training and this included a comic book style operations manual which I put some pictures up on my IG if you guys go check out my IG at ape academy podcast and also my main account at ape academy which is now activated we won our appeal so we got our account back you'll see pictures of the comic book style operations guide for the M16 it's pretty cool I think it was meant to kind of get the soldiers attention <laughs> you'll see why um, but it really helped the soldiers understand how to use their weapon, how to break it apart, what the different parts meant, what they did, what tools you needed, how to clean it, how often to clean it. These are really, really important questions that every soldier should know the answers to. And when you ship out a bunch of new weapons with no instructions and no cleaning kits, you can expect that the learning curve is going to be pretty steep. But they did a great job in recovering and making adjustments to the original version, all right? Eventually, as a result of all these improvements, the reliability improved and the M16A1 eventually gained widespread respect 
and acceptance by troops in Vietnam. It took a while, but eventually they gained their respect. In 1969, the M16A1 officially replaced the M14 rifle to become the military's standard service rifle. And that is the story of the original M16, the Cliff Notes version. <laughs> All right. Phew, man. All right. So what did we learn from this? Well, we learned that it takes a while for changes to be made. And when they are made, there's always a uh, bumbling and fumbling period where people kind of stepping on their own feet, tripping over their own feet, not sure what to do. There's a lot of mistakes that are made. But what the important thing is, what the Army did do, what the military did do was they learned from the early mistakes, right? They were hard-headed. They didn't want to change out from the you know, M1, from the M14. But when they did, and then they actually looked at the data, they looked at the battlefield reports, they looked at some of these investigations to figure out, hey, why are, why are our guys dying? Why can't they figure out how to use their weapons? Okay, this is why. They made those adjustments, and it came out to be um, one of the more reliable weapons in the Army. So it took a while. But it worked out eventually. That's all we got for today, guys. This was Battlefield Bloodlines, the M16 Part 2. I hope you enjoyed it. This was a longer podcast, so I stumbled and bumbled a little bit. But we're getting better each time, guys. If you guys remember, if you have a second, please rate, review, and subscribe to us. We need it. We love you guys for considering us and downloading our podcast. We hope that you learned something. We hope that you really enjoy it. Remember, God bless you. Remember to stay positive. Put your family first. Get after it. Work hard. Keep grinding. Never let anyone tell you that you can't do something. Let's go. In a few days, we got another podcast coming. And guess what it's about? The granddaddy. The M1 Grand World War II style ape. Thank you so much, Mr. Organic Dope. We appreciate your beats. Love you, man. All right, so thank you all my international listeners. Please, please follow us on IG, Ape Academy Podcast. That's the, the podcast IG page. We're also on Twitter, 